Well, good morning again. Happy Resurrection Sunday to you all. Today, as we've said in the past already, uh, is a day that we celebrate Jesus Christ rising from the dead. After being crucified, after being buried in the tomb for three days, he rose again on that third day. And if I, I were to give a title to this message, it would simply be the word rejoice. And that word rejoice comes from one of the first words that Jesus spoke to his followers immediately after they saw him rise. And uh, it's found in Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Uh, and we'll just read uh, 10 verses there about the encounter of his disciples seeing him right after uh, he rose from the dead. It says in Matthew 28, verse 1, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he is risen, as he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with great fear and great joy, and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell the disciples, behold, the Lord, uh, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. What a miraculous event this is. You have here this great earthquake that happens. The stone is rolled away. The guards could not believe their eyes. These are paid guards to protect this area, to prevent him from escaping. He has rolled the stone away. He has... Um, risen. He has come out of that tomb. The tomb is now empty. Jesus is not there because Jesus is risen from the dead. It's no wonder the women had this great fear and yet at the same time this great joy in knowing that he was risen. And as soon as um, his disciples see him, Jesus tells them to rejoice. And they do the only logical thing that they can do. Upon seeing him coming back from the dead, they worship Jesus. You see, Easter is such a joyous occasion for someone who understands the truth of the gospel, for someone that understands why Jesus came in the first place, to someone who understands why he died for us, to someone who understands what it would mean if Jesus had not risen from the grave. And so that's kind of what I want to look at today. First of all, why did Jesus come to this earth? Secondly, what would it mean if Jesus had not risen from the grave? And finally, since we know that Jesus has risen from the dead, what does that mean for you and I today? And in order to understand why Easter is a time of rejoicing, we unfortunately need to take a step back to the bad news. The bad news is found in the reason, really, why Jesus had to come here in the first place. A few years ago, we, uh, well, really my dad, decided that it would be a good idea to trace back our family lineage. We would go back and uh, go on one of those websites, and, and you find out, oh, this person's related to that person. And sure enough, you know, after enough phone calls and enough research, you can go back several generations. I think we went back as far as 10 generations 
And it was really interesting to see the people in my life that were from, you know, generations past that, you know, were either lawyers or maybe they were uh, accountants or maybe they were dentists, all walks of life. Very interesting to see that. And some were very well off. Some, you know, live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, some people were maybe more well known at the time and other people, um, you know, were just unknown people. Some people didn't have any information about because they were so unknown. And uh, we just stopped at 10 generations. But believe it or not, it was interesting to find that in, in all those people, they all had one common thing. And that was that they're all sinners. And uh, if we had continued going back farther, we stopped at 10 generations. If we had kept following that family lineage and gone all the way back to the very beginning, we would have found where our family tree started. It, if, if you continue that lineage, it would go all the way back to Adam and Eve. And we would have again found that everyone from Adam and Eve and onward were, again, sinners. Adam and Eve, as you know, were the first people that God created on this earth. God created them, placed them in this perfect world, a world with no death, no pain, no suffering. It was perfect. And God's summary, after he created all that he made on his sixth day, he looked at it all and said, it was very good. That was the summation of what God created. And uh, you really, as a, as a person living on the earth, you couldn't have asked for a more ideal place to live. They, uh, they had it perfectly. God was walking side by side with them. But God also gave Adam and Eve free will. He gave them the choice to choose from wrong and right. And uh, it's much like what we have today. We have the ability to choose to do wrong or to do right. And God told them they could eat of any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And after some time in that garden, sure enough, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They took of that fruit. And in doing so, they sinned against God, his command. And as a result of their sin, a curse came upon this world. And the curse brought about pain. It brought about suffering, death. Death both physically and spiritually. And when I say spiritually death, I mean that mankind no longer had a relationship with God. They were spiritually dead. And without God's intervention, mankind would ultimately die in their sins, and they would be eternally separated from God. And remember I said that all of my family tree was filled with sinners. Well, as a result of Adam and Eve's choice, sin entered and spread to all their offspring. And if you follow that tree, that would include you and me and everyone in this world who still currently lives. Romans 5 tells us, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. We are all descendants of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were sinners, and we as descendants of them are born into the world with a sin nature. Uh, you know, we, we desire to sin from an early age. Uh, you know, you see early on as we're kids, we lie to our parents. We tell them we did something when we didn't. Um, we cheat. We steal. We disobey our parents. Those are all just at an early age. You don't have to teach a kid to lie. You don't have to teach a kid to, not do, to do the wrong thing. They, they just know it. It's in their nature. But as we get older, you know, we maybe get a little bit more sophisticated, and we learn how to be better about getting away with sin. But we still sin nonetheless. And it's a result of our sin nature. The point is, I am a sinner. You are a sinner. Everyone in this world is a sinner because they've been born from sinful generations past, from Adam and Eve. Um, 
And that's, and, you know, this is very difficult to hear. This is the bad news to hear. You might think, well, on a message that's supposed to be about rejoicing, how can I be joyous when there's just such terrible news to hear? And I would agree with you. It seems that way. But in order to understand the greatness of what the resurrection means, in order to understand how joyous the resurrection is, you first have to understand and acknowledge the bad news so that the solution that God offers, uh, you'll realize just how joyous that is. As, an, as a nurse, I often, I often start people on new medications, and sometimes the doctor does not always have time to come in and explain to them necessarily their diagnosis or even the medications they're on. Sometimes they're admitted, they're running tests, they're trying to figure out what's happening. And so sometimes, for the first time, I'm giving them a medication they've never even heard of. And uh, it's, not, it's not uncommon that, you know, sometimes I'll have to explain, you know, this is for your heart rate, this is to fight an infection. And uh, a lot of people, though, if they're really on top of their um, health, they'll, they'll say to me, you know, I've never taken that before. I, I don't need that. I don't, I don't want that. Uh, I, I'd rather have that explained to me before I take it because I'm not sure about that one. That's not my normal course of what I take. And so at that point, you know, I then have to call the doctor and give them a heads up and say, you know what? You need to explain to them not only this medication, you need to explain why they're here in the first place. You need to tell them why they need this medication. And uh, to a much a greater extent, if I offered, say, a medication that's like a, a chemotherapy, uh, the person might have a greater deal uh, taking that medication because they would say, well, as far as I know, I don't have cancer. I don't have anything wrong with me. Why would I take this medication? And uh, if, though, the doctor decided to, you know, I called him and he, and he listened to me and he, and he said, you know what, no, I want to show you. Here's a PET scan. Here's the labs. Here is indisputable evidence that you do indeed have cancer. Now, how much more would a person be willing and be receptive of that treatment now that they know what their diagnosis is? They would obviously take it right away. They'd obviously realize this is my condition. Now, therefore, what is the solution that you have to offer? And the same is true of our spiritual lives. You've been diagnosed with a terminal disease called sin. If left untreated, you will perish in your sins, where you'll be separated from God forever. It's, it's ultimately, it's a miserable end for those who don't know God and don't know his solution to their sin problem. You see, in order to understand why Jesus came to this earth, you first have to understand that you're a sinner, or else the rest of the story won't make sense. Just like a cancer patient, if they don't realize they have cancer, they'll never see their need for a cancer treatment. Likewise, if you don't first realize you're a sinner, you'll never see your need for a savior. So going back to Adam and Eve, they sinned, they were kicked out of the garden. And what is God going to do? What is God's solution to the problem that Adam and Eve have now brought into this world by sinning? Does God have a solution? And sure enough, in Genesis 3, he sure does. Because immediately after they sinned against him, God promised that through Adam's offspring, he would send a savior. And God repeats this promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, Generations on and on and on, promising that one day there will be a Messiah that I will send through your seed that will, save our, that will save your people. And God is always faithful to his word. Through the Virgin Mary, Jesus was born into this world. Jesus, being fully God and fully man, sinless, he is not like us. We are born of a man and a woman. We are conceived into this world as sinners. God rather blessed Mary by allowing her to conceive miraculously, and he, even though she was a virgin. And through this way, God was able to come into this world sinless, 
perfect. Jesus came from heaven. I mean, think about that. He came from heaven in the most humble of fashions. He left the joy of being with his father to be born into a world where there was no inn for him. There was no place for him to lay his head. He came into this world just totally humble, without any kind of parading, no kind of great entrance. It's the humblest fashion possible. He left it all to enter this sinful world. And for what purpose? What reason? What was the motivating factor for why Jesus came to this world? Well, John 3, 16 tells us, it's a very famous verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, God's love for us, that was the motivating factor as to why he sent his Son. He loved us so much that he gave his only begotten Son to us to be our Savior. His purpose in coming to this world was to save us from our sins. And Jesus is the only one, the only solution to our sin problem. You might wonder, well, then how, how, how was Jesus received when he came? Did people just welcome him with open arms? What did the world do to him? Well, by and large, John, 10, or John 1 gives us the summary that he was rejected. It says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. Though some people we read in, in the Gospels, though there are a small portion that believed upon him, that received him, the vast majority chose to reject him. The vast majority would not make space for him in their lives, in their homes, or in their hearts. Jesus Christ, he proclaimed the good news. He stated that he indeed is the Son of God. He demonstrated that power by showing many signs and wonders, miracles that were undeniable proof of God's supernatural power. His behavior was like, any, was like unlike anything else anyone had seen. He was perfect. He was sinless. And yet they hardened their hearts to him. They blinded their eyes to the truth of God, even though he was standing right in front of them. They did not want him as their Lord. They did not want him as their Savior. They would not accept him. And so instead, to get rid of him, they had him arrested. They had him sent to Pontius Pilate to be crucified. In fact, the people of Jesus' day hated him so much that when given the choice between Jesus, the perfect son of God, or a convicted murderer, Barabbas, they chose to have the convicted murderer released. And Jesus, he was taken away to be whipped, to be mocked, to be spit upon, punched. They gave him a crown of thorns, and they crushed it on his head. They put a robe over him to mock him as a king. They hit him and said, prophesy who hit you. And they led him away to be crucified on a cross. And on that cross, they would drive the nails into his hand. They would drive the nails into his feet. And he would endure the agony of crucifixion for hours. And there on that cross, he died for you and for me. He paid for our sins on that cross. And as far as some people go, that's as far as they know what happened. They, they know that Jesus died for their sins. That's usually as far as people get. They often leave out the fact that he was buried and then rose again on the third day. 
Or maybe they know it, but, but they maybe talk about it as if it's a, an afterthought that, oh yeah, he did that too. But if he just simply died and never rose again, we as Christians, as professing believers in Jesus Christ, we would be in a whole slew of trouble. You see, the resurrection, uh, really, the entire Christian faith is centered around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the most important element in the Christian faith that Jesus Christ rose again. And so, just how important was that, that he rose from the dead? let's, Let's answer the question, if Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, what would that mean for us? And actually, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians the implications of what it would mean if Jesus did not rise from the grave. We read about it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, we are also found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins." Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. These verses make it very clear to us just how crucially important it is to us to know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Because without it, we have no hope for the future. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then these are six conclusions that we would have to make about our lives. The number one conclusion is that our preaching is empty. If Christ did not rise from the dead, our preaching is empty because it contradicts the very thing that Christ promised he would do, which is rise from the dead. And so if Christ did not rise from the dead, then Christ is a liar, and he's not worthy of our trust. And every preacher around all of America, all the world, who has ever preached that Christ is risen, is preaching empty lies or giving out false hope. The second thing we'd have to accept, if, if Christ is not risen, then our faith is empty. If we, we preach, this is the, what we preach. We preach that Christ rose from the dead. We preach he was defeated sin. He defeated sin's curse, which is death. We say that the resurrection proves that. We say that if you place your trust in that good news, that sin no longer has a stranglehold on you. We see that death cannot defeat us. We see that Jesus died for us, he rose again, and that if we die, the grave won't keep us either. We say that we will rise again with him, and that's the very foundation of our faith. But if Christ did not rise from the dead, then neither will we. Our faith in his resurrection is in vain if he didn't rise from the dead. Our faith that we will one day meet him again is also in vain. Our our eternity, our entire future, rests upon the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And if he did not rise, then our faith is meaningless. It's empty. It's useless. The third thing we'd have to accept, if Christ has not risen from the dead, then we are found to be false witnesses of God. I want you to imagine for a second um, that you have cancer and you're fighting an incurable disease. And after going from doctor to doctor to doctor, they tell you that this disease uh, This cancer you have, it's just we don't know enough about it. We don't have a cure for it. 
And after doing enough research and shopping, you find this one doctor who tells you, you know what? I know this is not necessarily out in the market right now, but this is the cure for you. This will cure it. I guarantee it. And you begin taking this, this treatment by him. And you feel, you know, you feel really encouraged by this. That, you know, I finally found something that will cure my, my disease. And so you, you decide you're so, you're so, um, you're so, you believe this so much that you begin campaigning for this drug, this new drug. And you become the spokesperson. And you're on all the advertisements. You start having things on billboards, and there you are, your face with that new drug. And you tell everyone, you join support groups, and you tell people, you know what? When all these other doctors told me I was going to die and that I didn't have a cure, this doctor, this doctor is a great one. He told me about this one cure. You guys should take it too. And, uh, and, and you begin supporting it and telling other people about how great this doctor is, and you build him up, and how great the cure is. But after you finish the regimen, what happens if... At the end of it, you complete the whole course, and you go to the doctor, and you say, you know what? I have to be honest with you. Even though I, I do really like this medication, I don't feel like I'm really getting any better. And uh, in fact, I feel like there's masses growing in other places, it feels like. And so you run the tests. You do some research on it, and, and he comes back the worst-case scenario. And, and in fact, you, your, your thoughts are correct. It has spread. It's gotten worse. It hasn't gotten any better. And you say to the doctor, well, how is this possible? You promised me that this was going to help me. You promised me that this was going to be the thing that would have cured me. And he said, well, I'm sorry, I never actually promised you that. I, honestly, I, I, just, I just gave it to you in the hopes that you'd be a little bit more encouraged and wouldn't be depressed in your final months. How devastating would that be? How devastating to know that you've been lied to the whole time. How devastating would it be to know that this doctor who promised he would do something for you didn't do it? And what's worse is that you told your whole family about it. You told all your friends. You posted on social media. Everyone knows that you're the campaign ad person for this drug that doesn't even work. That's terrible. A false witness is one who says someone did something when they didn't do it. A lying witness is what they're called. And in this case, you would be a false witness. You'd be testifying to the world about a medication of, that cures cancer when, in fact, it doesn't do that. And not only that, but you've also shown the doctor to be a liar because, because you testified falsely that this doctor had the solution when he didn't. Devastating. In a similar sense, though, when we preach Christ's resurrection, we are saying that God raised up Christ from the grave. And if Christ, did not raise from, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we're telling lies about God. We're being false witnesses. We're claiming God did something when he didn't do it at all. That's the conclusion. If, if Christ is not risen, we are false witnesses of God. Fourth, the conclusion we have to come to is, if Christ is not risen, our faith is futile. We are still in our sins. And this is probably one of the most difficult uh, ones to accept because that would mean that if we are still in our sins, then we are still under the guilt and the condemnation of our sins because it was through his death and sacrifice on the cross that we said we received forgiveness. In Ephesians, it tells us, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to his riches of his grace. And God, say, God says in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so that's what we were hoping for, is that through his sacrifice, our sin is paid for. And yet, if Jesus shed his blood for us, gave up his life on that cross, 
but never rose from the dead, then how would we know for sure that we've been justified? How would we know we've been declared righteous before God? How would we know we have eternal life? He would just be like any other person, dying, never to come back again. So ultimately, if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christ was not raised from the dead. And if Christ was not raised from the dead, then death has power over him and it defeated him when he died on the cross. And if death has power over Jesus Christ, then his claims while he was on this earth are false. And he is not God. And if Jesus is not God, then he is not perfect. And therefore, he cannot pay for my sins because he would be a sinner. And if Jesus cannot pay for my sins, then my sin debt still needs to be paid for. And if my sin debt is not paid for before God, then I am still in my sins. And if Christ is not risen, then he is not able to save me. I remain in my sins. And how futile, how empty would my faith be? The fifth thing we would have to accept is that if Christ is not risen, then those who have died in Christ have perished. Those who have, during their lifetime, trusted in Christ, they put their faith in him, they sacrificially gave of their time, their resources, they gave of their, uh, just their effort, and they prayed to God. They told others, they, they evangelized and told them about the good news. All those who died having the hope of being resurrected again and seeing their Savior face to face. Sadly, the reality for them, if Christ was not able to raise himself from the dead, then why would we believe that he would be able to raise them from the dead as well? They would have perished, meaning that they would have gone on forever without hope, without an eternity spent in heaven, because Christ would still be in the grave with them. It's a sad, sad reality if Christ is not risen. And finally, uh, the last thing we'd have to accept is if, if Christ is not risen, then we of all men are most pitiable. We have, been in banking, we have been banking our eternal souls on the fact that Christ is risen. It changes the way we live our lives. It causes us to want to live our lives with eternity stamped on our minds. But if Christ is not risen, then we've been fooled. The sacrifice that we've made in our life to serve him, to pray to him, to live our lives in a holy manner, it's been meaningless. Any hope that we have has now been dashed to pieces. And we are the most sad and pitiable people to ever have walked the face of this earth. Put very plainly, if Christ did not rise from the dead, I should just end the message now. Every church in America and in the world should permanently close because there is no hope. There is no future. There is no salvation if Christ has not risen. Uh, there, it says in 1 Corinthians that, you know, basically the same thing, that if the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's the reality of it. Solomon says the same conclusion. He sets out to see all the pleasures of the world. He goes and explores what the world has to offer. And his conclusion of all the world has to offer is that it's, it's, it's as elusive as trying to harness the wind. You can't capture it. And yet, it would still be better to live our lives trying to gain whatever little pleasure the world has to offer than to believe in a false teacher who was never able to rise from the grave if Christ is not risen. That's the reality of it. We might as well just enjoy the little time we have here because there is no hope for tomorrow. Now that's the reality if Christ is not risen. And thankfully, my message does not end there, thankfully, uh, thankfully Paul tells us the truth. 
And what a relief it is to read finally in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Praise the Lord, Jesus is risen. We, as we read at the very beginning of this message, the tomb was empty. Jesus was not there. The stone had been rolled away. He was raised to life. When I went to Israel a few years back, the number one highlight of my trip was seeing that the tomb is still empty. I saw it with my very own eyes. Jesus is no longer buried there. But Jesus didn't just come back from the grave never to be seen again. There's at least 10 recorded times where Jesus appeared to various people after his resurrection. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to John. He appeared to the disciples uh, without Thomas. He appeared to them with Thomas. He appeared to the disciples on the shore of Galilee. He appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses at once. All verifiable evidence that he came back from the dead. He appeared to them in different locations, in different group sizes. People physically saw him with their own eyes. They heard him speak with their own ears. They saw him eat food in front of them. They, uh, they were able to physically touch him and know that he is alive. It wasn't just a, a vision they had. It's physically there, him in the flesh. Jesus is alive, and he proved it with his various appearances. So since Christ is risen, since he has come back from the dead, what does that mean for us? What does that prove? I said at the beginning that this message is really, despite how it looks so far, it is a message about rejoicing. And I want to look over the reasons why we rejoice. Because Jesus Christ is risen. Because he lives, there is so many things for us to be joyful about. So we rejoice for five reasons. The first reason, we rejoice because the resurrection proves that God's word is true. The resurrection proves that God's word is true. King David spoke prophetically about the Messiah who would suffer, who would be buried, and who would rise again nearly a thousand years before he ever came to this earth. Job and Isaiah are also other examples in the Old Testament who spoke and prophesied about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. More notably, Jesus Christ himself, in all four gospel accounts, tells the people, tells the disciples, tells other people that he will rise from the dead. He says in John 2, after the, uh, the people in the temple ask him to show a sign, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said to them, that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Jesus said he would rise again, he rose from the dead, and therefore God's word, by doing that, is truthful. It's validated that it is truth. And we rejoice in the fact that through his resurrection, God's word can be trusted. God's word is truthful. God's word is accurate. The second reason we rejoice, we rejoice because the resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he claimed to be the Son of God. Only God is able to be all-knowing. Only he can predict the future with such precision. And during his earthly ministry, he predicted that he would suffer, that he would die, and that he would rise from the grave. And he fulfilled it by coming back from the dead. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he said that the resurrection of Jesus Christ demonstrates that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. 
Paul says in Romans 1.4 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was a declaration to the entire world that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. The resurrection proves his deity. No man could do that. Only God can conquer death. Only God can prophesy the future and have it come to pass with absolute accuracy. We rejoice because the resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God. These last few are more on a personal note. and These ones, I think, really, really speak to me in our lives, really, and how it applies the most. Uh, the third reason we rejoice is because the resurrection proves that God's plan of salvation is complete. God's plan of salvation is complete. We started off by hearing about how sin entered the world, how death entered through the disobedience of Adam, and now it's come full circle. We have come, uh, we come so full circle because through his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus Christ, who is that last Adam, has brought forth salvation, eternal life. He's brought it to the entire world. If Jesus was still in the grave, he would be no different than any other man who has, who has simply come to this earth and died and gone on. We would never know. We would never know if his sacrifice was enough if he didn't rise from the dead. We would always have to guess, but now we don't have to. We never have to wonder if there's something more that is left or if, or if he didn't, did he do it, did he give enough for it? Was it, do I still need to do my part? No, we don't have to do that anymore. The fact that he rose from the dead tells us that the work is finished, that the price has been paid in full, and that there is nothing left to pay, and that God is fully satisfied with his sacrifice. And now because of that, we are no longer under guilt, under the condemnation of our sins. We are able to freely receive his gift of, of forgiveness of sins, his free gift of salvation. His resurrection tells us that Jesus has defeated sin and death on the cross, and therefore we are justified through his resurrection. And because of that, we can confidently say that if you're a believer today, you are no longer in your sins. Praise the Lord. The fourth thing that we can rejoice about, we rejoice because the resurrection proves that we too will be raised like Christ was. Jesus describes uh, is described in 1 Corinthians as the first fruit of the resurrection from the dead, which means that his resurrection is a precursor to all the resurrections that believe to the resurrection that all believers will experience one day. It says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. We have that hope as believers that if our life here on earth were to end today, it would only just be the beginning of our lives because we'd spend forever in heaven seeing our Savior face to face, thanking the Lord who saved us, who died for us, and who rose again. So that is what we rejoice about. We rejoice that we too will be raised like Christ. And finally, we rejoice because the resurrection proves that we have a living hope. First Peter talks about this living hope when it says, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, by faith you believe the greatest message that mankind has ever heard. You hold fast to the truth of the gospel. The gospel is that we are sinners, guilty before a righteous God, and yet that same God who we are guilty before loved us so much. He didn't want us to perish, but instead he wanted to have a relationship with us. He wanted to restore that broken relationship, and so he sent his son Jesus Christ to this earth to die for us. And he rose again on that third day. And by believing what Christ has done by faith, we have been forgiven of our sins. We are justified before God. And we have a tremendous hope that we cling to, that we who were once hell-bound sinners are now children of God. And not just children of God, but we also have a tremendous inheritance, an eternal inheritance in heaven that never fades away, that never corrupts, that never can be taken from us. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are, as believers, eternally secure. We are the most blessed people to ever walk this face of the earth because we know that we have a hope in the future. His resurrection has given our life meaning. It's given us our life's hope, given our life's purpose, and it brings us joy to know that we have this hope. As believers, it's just so wonderful, the promise that we have to look forward to each day. The hymn writer of the song, Because He Lives, came to the same conclusion when he wrote these words. He says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, and life is worth the living just because he lives. Believers have a wonderful peace because they know the Lord Jesus Christ on a personal level. But maybe you're listening to this for the first time, or maybe you're listening to this for the millionth time you've been to church. But regardless, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and you've always wondered, how can I have a relationship with God? How can I have my sins forgiven? How can I be saved? The Bible simply tells us in Romans 10:9 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is my hope and prayer that you will accept this free gift of salvation that God offers us, that you will trust him and come to know the eternal hope and, and the great joy that we have as believers, knowing that our Savior has paid it all on that cross. The Bible tells us today is, to, uh, indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Place your faith in him and experience the joy of knowing him. And, and knowing Jesus, our risen Savior, and receive that eternal life that he brings to each and every one of us who follows him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're just so thankful, Lord, for the truth of your word. We're thankful that, Lord, you indeed have risen, and that, Lord, we never have to wonder if it's been paid in full or not. But, Lord, you have paid it in full, and, Lord, we can rejoice that we will forever be with you in heaven, and that one day we will see you face to face. And, Lord, we're just we're so thrilled by that. I pray that we would continue keeping this uh, reminder of our great hope in the, in the front, forefront of our mind as we go upon living the rest of our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would share this with other people as well, how they can too know 
the truth of the gospel. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.